If the function of art is to help an audience feel less alone, then five easy pieces succeeds beautifully. That's a great blurb from Edward Guffman of San Francisco Chronicle. That's our old movie we're talking about this week because I went on an absolute bender this week. I, I don't know what happened. I what happens, actually, I don't know what happened. I had trouble sleeping. And normally I have trouble sleeping. I just end up reading. And this week I didn't read a ton. Wait till you see where our wild card is because I was reading Cal Penn's book. Fantastic. You can't be serious. The guy's hysterical. He's got 27 minutes of great stories. Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, President Obama, you name it. He's got it covered. Indian stripper named Sonny. You're going to want to hear it. But once I finished the book, I said, okay, I've got to, you know, let me watch a little movie here and there. And I finally discovered on HBO Max, the TCM hub. It was like discovering plutonium because I went in there and I saw this great Jack Nicholson collection. I'm like, oh my God. So I went on a crazy Jack Nicholson binge this week. I had not seen five easy pieces in 30 years. Bob Rafelson, the director, recently passed with the age of 89. Ty Burr, my guy, wrote a great appreciation for Bob Rafelson. I said, you know what? I got to watch five easy pieces again. And then I went down that wormhole, baby. I had never <laughs> seen the last detail. I'm like, oh my God, it's on HBO Max. Boom. Knocked at the last detail. Classic Jack Nicholson. Postman rings twice. Jack Nicholson, Jessica Lange, David Mamet script. Never seen it. Bam. And then I finished it up yesterday. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, which I've obviously seen. Hadn't seen that in 25 years. One of the great films of all time. Amazing. So that's our old, a lot of old, a lot of Jack Nicholson. But Cal Penn's amazing. And our new is The Captain. Derek Jeter's seven-part documentary on ESPN. Chris, did you, I know you probably did not see the Nicholson movies. Have you seen The Captain? I have seen all, almost all of The Captain. I think I'm like through five. What is there, yeah, seven? seven episodes. I've, it, yeah, I've seen enough, though, to have. I have an opinion. I was about to say, if, if you've um, seen five, you're Cal Penn, I am so excited for the people to hear this Cal Penn interview, which just it's got a lot of range. It's talking about some of the serious stuff. It's Harold and Kumar. I'm just super excited about that. I've only heard of... One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's the only movie of those that I've heard I, of. I was laughing back. I've had a couple of friends go, hey, man, I saw that, that Paul Newman documentary. I'm like, yeah, it's amazing. They're like, yeah. They go, that was pretty funny when Cody goes, the only one I've seen is Slapshot. I'm like, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't surprising to me. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not expecting it to be like, oh, I love Cole and Luke. I'm like, if he said that, I would have been surprised. Similarly, yeah. this week, if he told me, oh, my God, the last detail is great. I'm like, really? What did you? What, I'm kind of surprised you saw that. I need to work in some more curveballs, though. I think I'm getting too predictable. That's what that, that, that note to you says. Like, I got I to gotta see. I mean, I've been watching movies more, but I need to, like, you know, I got to throw a curveball at you. Where, like, one day I come in and I've just, like, seen every movie, every but, old movie we're But doing. in fairness to you, I was giving you these at the last minute because you knew what I was doing. I was texting you in the morning going, hey, add this one, add this one. You go, okay, clearly he's yeah. just watching a bunch of movies and just wants to talk about Jack. <laughs> and it was up till 4 a.m. just watching Jack <laughs> If you check the time code when I was emailing him, he's like, what the hell's going on? You're like, this guy just can't sleep. He's just watching Jack Nicholson movies. Uh, I had a blast though i also had two run-ins with the law this week two of them what dropped off my porsche for an oil change oh my geez and it's not your car your porsche gotcha and the key is with the oil change for the porsche is that it's only like once a year every ten thousand miles so they say once a year it's more like every 10 months but whatever and it's always expensive 500 bucks normally you take your car for an oil change anyone's regular car whatever 30 bucks 50 bucks i don't know what an oil right. change costs it's every three months five thousand miles Porsche is expensive. It's only once a year. Okay, cool. All good. But it takes like two or three hours. It's not one of those oil changes. You can't just sit there and wait. So I said, let's do this first thing in the morning. Dropped my son off at football practice. Dropped off the Porsche. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to bother my wife. She's sleeping in. The other three kids are probably running around a little bit. It's fine. I'll just walk. It's an hour and a half walk, but it's only a five-minute drive. Very odd math. I'm like, I don't believe that my, my Google Maps is correct. Hour and a half walk. That's insane. I was like, I'm just going to walk it. It's probably like an hour. How long is it? Like, Distance-wise. That's a good question. Because uh, like, that, like if it's like two or three miles, it's probably like an hour walk. I don't know. No, that that, that will help with the, the math on this. So I just start walking. But I'm going down, if you know New Jersey, Route 17, which is like a highway. So I'm walking off the side. Walking down a highway? Correct. You're already onto this. So <laughs> Is there a walkway? There's a walkway, but it's not a big one. So I'm even, as I'm walking, I noticed, like if I, and I'm, I'm locked in. By the way, Keith Oberman's got a new podcast out. It's incredible. I know he's very polarizing, but I love KO. So I'm like, I'm listening to this daily podcast, Monday through Friday. So I'm like, I'll listen to Keith's podcast, Countdown with Keith Oberman. I'll knock out a Levitard show, which I did. I messaged you. Great episode with your dad talking about avocado toast and turkey legs. He was very pissed. It was very funny. <laughs> By the way, ratio of people responding to me when I respond to them, like this is incredible to me. Like I texted Keith and I go, hey, I have one suggestion. He's like, sure. I said, in your Apple podcast, you should put the time code. Because I'm not always going to listen to the political stuff, but I'll never miss your sports, and I'll never miss world's worst person in the world. He's like, cool. So I'm like, just put yeah. world's, put 1807, 2720. And then if I'm listening, I'm like, boom. Like, I'll try this whole thing, but for, he's like, oh, great. Which, by the way, we should start doing for our podcast as well. So we should start right. putting the time code. I go, that's, Serena yeah. does that with Rosillo. I'm like, that's yeah, very, very helpful. He's like, oh, great, cool. So after listening, to just proof that I do have my feedback listened to, the next day, boom, he did that. I'm like, great. So I texted you, 
Dan, Stu, Mike Ryan, just how much I enjoyed the episode. I only received responses. You gave me the uh, exclamation point, which I love, because I said, tell Juju. That's an example of a social media clip that's so good, I had to go listen to the whole 40-minute episode. And then Dan did respond, because there was another episode I listened to, which I loved you guys were talking about. I don't think you were on it. It was Edwin Diaz and the, the celebration right now with the trumpet. Yeah. And Dan's line was, because Stu goes, listen, right now it's great, but if it doesn't work out, that the Mets fans are going to go nuts. He's like, yeah, he's going to leave the game with a trumpet up his ass, and it's going to make the sound <laughs> of a trumpet as he leaves. <laughs> That's hilarious. Which is hysterical. That but is pass good. along to Mike Ryan. I like the fact he had an Eric Gagne reference. Mentioned to Witty. I also like the music, but they didn't respond to me. Anyways, I'm walking down the street. It's a highway to Chris's point. You can't, I can't walk down a highway. It's not a big walkway. As I'm listening to KO, I'm like, yeah, no big deal. But when I turn once in a while, I go, hmm. Like, I'm like one errant step away from a guy checking a text message. And I'm like, I'm in trouble. So I walked, and it, the walk, correct, I got to get props to Google Maps. They're pretty good. I was near home, and it was an hour 20. Cop car pulls over. Gives me a sign. He's like, what's going on? And at that moment, I realized how ludicrous it was. So I'm like, I just, I just dropped my car off for an oil change. I'm just walking home. He's like, okay. Um, <laughs> Oh, we, we got a couple calls about you. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. I'm like, and I'm like, they probably think I'm a mentally ill man. Like, I, and I looked at myself and I go, eh, I probably call about me too. I'm wearing a maroon Canada shirt, basketball shorts, and flip flops, and I'm listening to a podcast. Like, yeah, I'm probably like, I think this guy's might be a little deranged. He's. I need to hear about how close. Like, this, you say there is a walkway. a walkway. The highways in Florida don't have walkways. Yeah. Like. It's not a sidewalk. Yes, there's a little space in between the line for the road and the wall. Correct. But that's not a walkway on the highway. Maybe a six feet walkway. But is it actually it's a, not walkway, a walkway? No, to your point, it's not a walkway. It's the side of the road. It's for cars to pull correct, over. Correct, if there's, yes. It is the side of the road. It's like it's not, not a sidewalk. It is not a sidewalk. It's not a walkway. Okay, that is correct. So what you're doing yeah. is insane. <laughs> Like at one point, I thought maybe I should start hitchhiking. Like that would have made more sense if I just like I'm looking for a hitter. I'm like, what? Like who hitchhikes in 2022? You should have told the cop my car broke down 42 miles back. <laughs> like it's too far for you to go back and take me or look. But like there's a car back there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, like yeah. so he he hears my reason and then I realize he probably thinks I'm ill. And then he's like, can I give you a ride home? And I go. I, and I wanted to say, I'm only 10 minutes away. Like, I kind of want to finish the journey at this point. I'm an hour 20 into an hour 30 walk. But I realized by his tone, it was not a question. It was, can I give you a ride? I'm like, yes, absolutely. He goes, can you show me your ID? I'm like, yep. I go, here's my address. Hohokus, New Jersey. Okay. He goes, and can you empty your pockets too? I'm like, oh my God. Like, this guy thinks I might. I'm like, no, yeah, I have a muffin here. I have my phone. <laughs> okay. So I get in the car. I immediately regretted it. Because have you ever been in the back of a police car? Oh, he put you in the back? Yeah, and I go, this is horrible. Because the first thing I did instinctively, lower the window. And I go, oh, uh, there's no windows here. And, and, yeah. and there, it, you are smushed. Like, there's this big barrier on the left side. I go, oh, my God. Yeah. Thank God this is only a two-minute ride. I'm like, I, did you, like, you know, flip the door open just to see if you could open it? It's like, oh, it's locked. <laughs> no, no, I, I tried. Because like, when, we, when he parked at my house, he had to get out first. I'm like, like, there's no handle. I'm like, oh, my God. This, I'm never going to commit a crime now. And I'm no longer walking along a highway. Did you feel good? Because I'm, I'm assuming that you have a nice house. So I'm like, I'm like, when he pulls into a nice neighborhood, a nice house, is there a little bit of like, all right, you were judging me before. I, probably a little, so you know. I think what helped is I go, yeah, the house with the Escalade. He was like, Okay, this guy's got a portion yeah. of Escalade. Right, maybe yeah. now, yeah. nice house. Okay. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like, it's not like he, you dropped you. You had him drop you off at like a McDonald's. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is fine. I'll just stay here. Thank just you. give me to the Burger King. From there, I'm fine. <laughs> the other cop story is a quicker one, but one that will feel familiar. Yesterday, I had to go for my annual physical. Thankfully, everything's all good. Cholesterol is a little high. Can I lower the cholesterol? But. That's what they oh, always thanks. say. Everyone's cholesterol's a lot. Th thank you. He goes, here's the things to cut down. He goes, uh, you're probably a big pork eater. I go, I don't eat pork. He goes, really? Go, Bacon, sausage? I go, I don't eat that. He's like, okay. He goes, uh, lower your lobster and shellfish. I go, I don't eat either of those. He's like, um, nuts. I go, I eat some almonds. Okay. He goes, milk, big milk guy? I go, no, only with cereal. He goes, cheese? I go, uh, with pizza. And he goes, eggs. I go, I used to be a pretty big eggs guy, but I, I rarely do. He goes, well, that stuff's like, that will bring down your cholesterol. I go, okay. He's I just looking for anything. He's like, you eat all this stuff? I got to come up with something. Uh, eggs. All right, yep. There it is. <laughs> He's just listing. I mean, food. eggs does. I know eggs do like right. the yolk, right? The yolk, like right. you got to go egg whites. Correct. You got to go egg whites. But I'm like, I think that's if you're eating eggs five days a week. I'm like, I think I have it maybe once a week. But I'm like, okay, fine. I'll, oh, only yeah. once a week? That's I'll cut out the once a week and just go egg whites. Fine, whatever you say. Do you like get, do you order them somewhere or do you make no, them? I normally make them at home. I, I, what do you think? I've done this move when I've tried to like cut a little yeah. bit. You'll do like what? How many eggs are you making? In that's the thing. thing. I'll make like four or five eggs. All right, that's the thing. So do four, do six, but only do two yolks. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Lafonso Ellis do, like, taught me all, that. You're right. Do whites for like four of them, and then do two yolks. So it's like a less. It's like a diet. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. you'll have like the amount of four eggs, but the yolk is only the yolk of two. No, you're right. That's that's actually a veteran move because if it's just whites, it's horrible. It is terrible. Too much yolk, I yeah. get that issue. So that's a smart move. Yeah. Anyways, I was late to get to the doctor, so I was speeding. 
Cop pulls me out right away. I'm like, yep, I know what this is. Okay, he comes out, and right away, what I do last time, I got that card, right? Gentleman's <laughs> card, whatever it is, friend of the police, whatever the hell you want to call it. I have it ready to go this time. Lord's window, license registration, sir. Yep, here you go. Okay, great. He goes, uh, I need your registration. I was like, oh, I gave you my license and my insurance. Oh, problem. Okay, registration. Good. Okay, there you go. Yep. He goes, this is 2021. I go, the, the car is fully registered, sir. I go, there's a sticker like on the front, 2023. He's like, okay. I'm just in the, I'm like, hey, maybe I, maybe I, whatever. I've got it in the mail or something. Yeah. You, you can call. You're like, we're all good. We're yeah, good. I'm just saying, I, I'm definitely registered. Okay, I understand that. And I was like, I also have this. This time it wasn't as bad as last. This guy go, I also have this. I don't know if it'll help. He's like, okay, great. Looks at it. He's like, yeah. Isaac, uh, do you know why I stopped you? I'm like, I was speeding. I was like, I, I'm late to a doctor's appointment. He's like, okay. He goes, you're going 15 to 25. And I'm like, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a little fast. <laughs> I, go, I just got an oil change. I'm feeling pretty good about the pour. So I'm, you know, I'm just flying around. He's like, yeah. Yeah. He goes, but then he looks at the car and it kind of gives it a five second look and he goes, but I'm going to be nice about this. So just uh, be careful. Have a great day. I'm like, unbelievable. Dude, I am, oh, I am two for two. I am two for that two is. on these cop cards. Oh, man. That, it pays. It pays to have one of those things. <laughs> Matt Orso, you're the best. All right. Uh, we're going to get to the captain. We're going to get to a whole lot of Jack Nicholson. But Cal Penn was so great. We're starting with the wild card. Cal Penn. Let's go. But Cal Penn, he is an absolutely huge talent, and he's obviously someone you know from the world of acting, but also in the world of politics, and now he's back to his love of acting, and he's an author. Terrific book. You can't be serious. I read the paperback edition, and of course, being of South Asian descent, he's somebody I deeply respect and admire. Cal Penn, great to see you, man. How you doing? Oh, thanks, man. What a kind intro. So my favorite part of the book is I'm from Toronto. I see you meet John Cho in Yorkville, which uh, for Torontonians, we all know, that's the very ritzy area of Toronto. That's where everyone's hanging out for the Toronto Film Festival. He teaches you to drink a scotch for the first time. You guys get to know each other a little bit. And then we have the best story of the entire book, which involves John Cho and farting. Can you please go ahead and give us that headline? By the way, thank you for noticing that story, okay? This book is designed for, I, the way I wrote it, I wanted, I wanted whether you're reading it or listening to the audiobook, I wanted people to feel like we're hanging out together. Yeah. And some of the stuff, you know, I have the chance to work in government, have the chance to work in comedy. So some of the stories are a little more serious. A lot of them are funny. This one story is one of my favorite stories. And and it's one of those things where like, you know how you have like an unreasonable amount of pride about about something in your life and then people don't pay attention to it because there are other things that they're focused on. Right. This is one of those stories. All right. So thank you for asking about it. Yeah. John Cho and I didn't know each other before the Harold and Kumar movies. And uh, he's a couple years older than me. He was a little more established acting wise. So when we start working together, it wasn't mentorship, but he like knew a little bit more about the world than I did, you know, especially as an actor. So there was one day where, you know, that, that whole movie is a road trip. So most of it takes place in a car. And a lot of times the car was not actually on a road. We were in front of a green screen in a studio. And so we would, we both like to read. So we'd both have like books tucked into the glove compartments of the, or the side doors of the, of this car. Uh, and between scenes, sometimes, or when they'd reset the camera, we would just pull out our books and read or talk. And one day, probably like three or four weeks into the shoot, John Cho decides that uh, the car is um, a little too drafty for him. Between the <laughs> oh, scenes. So he goes, hey, man, do you mind if I roll up the windows? I was like, oh, sure. You want to roll up the windows? Mind you, we're on a soundstage. Like, it's not, we're not going anywhere. How are you drafting? But I didn't think anything of it. I was like, yeah, man, go ahead. Roll, roll up the windows. So... He grabs the keys. He he uh, he rolls up the windows, and then he goes, um, "Can I actually hang on to the keys?" I, I was like, "Yeah, why?" Like, I don't know. I, I look at these keys; they're great. And then the next thing I know, he has opened his door. He sticks his ass basically in my face, farts, hits the door lock, and slams the door shut. And he's got the keys outside. So I was like, "Oh God, no! What? You've trapped? He trapped me in his fart machine." And uh, and I was like, oh, I I love that guy. <laughs> this guy is like a brother now. This is so uh, we bonded very quickly, <laughs> and he's still you know he's still one of my closest friends. So listen, you know this in the business, everyone always wants to watch one thing: money. Yeah. How much did you make? How much is this? Are you guys rich? Everyone thinks we're all rich. I like the fact you made it clear. Harold and Kumar, it's a nice check. It's enough for six months. Pay my rent. It was good. Yeah. But I didn't get rich off it. Yeah. Sequel, we made some more money. Sure. But like it became a gigantic hit on DVD and video. That did not impact the life of Cal Penn. No, no, it didn't. It, look, for, for things like this, and this is a contract that you know you're signing, right? Like, And especially, look, for context, right? Like back in the day, 2003 was probably when we signed that initial contract, made the movie. 
you know, it was hard for guys who look like John and I to get our, our feet in the door. It's still not easy, but it's also a profession that's not easy, right? So no matter what you look like, it's hard. I think if you're a performer of color, there are some added hurdles, especially at that time. And so you're signing a contract that was like, hey, if you do this movie, you'll be able to pay your rent for six months. So what you're banking on there is after that six months, hopefully this movie leads to something else. And if not, then, you know, you've at least got six months of paying your rent. Like, look, for an artist, you know, you're paying your rent based on what you do. That's huge. So you're right. It, the, the tricky thing, and I outlined this in the book, was like, you know, I, we were all hoping it would lead to something. After six months, it hadn't led to anything. The movie, I don't think it had necessarily come out yet. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I ran out of that salary. But then I couldn't get a job at like Starbucks or, or waiting tables right. because the managers were too concerned that if somebody recognizes me from, I'd done this movie with Van Wilder before that with Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Like if people recognize you from that, you can't turn over coffee orders enough because they're going to want to talk to you. And I was like, wait a second. In film school, they never tell you that your first job is only going to pay for a couple months. And then, by the way, nobody else is going to hire you even to work your day job, right? So it was a huge learning curve. But the reason I talk about that in the book, I'm glad you brought it up. We have such a respect for the fans of that franchise because the movie came out. People forget it did not do well in the box office. But once it came out on DVD and on HBO, People flocked to it. They bought it. They supported it. That gave us a chance to do a second and third movie and really launched uh, certainly my career in ways that I never would have imagined. So I have a lot of gratitude. Do you think it would have been the same response if it was Harold and Kumar go to Krispy Kreme? Because that's what it almost was, right? I read that. It was almost Krispy Kreme or something. Yeah, it was something. I think they uh, they had... The original was White Castle. and I think they were trying to figure out what backups would be. But the White Castle company, as far as I know, they didn't pay any money. It wasn't like a licensing or product thing. They just sort of reached out to them and they said they read the script and they said, yeah, sure. And I remember when we were shooting their one rule. I hope this is correct. If my memory is their one rule was no matter what, you can do anything you want at the like these guys going to White Castle, except disparage any of our employees. So anyone who's playing a White Castle employee, you cannot disparage that person. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Like, first of all, it's Harold and Kumar. We're not trying to disparage anybody, but it's just not that kind of humor. But number two, like the fact that a corporation would be like, yeah, do whatever you want with the brand, just not our team, you know, the, the team that works so hard for us. I, I, had, I thought that was really classy. How many burgers would you say you guys ate over the full <laughs> filming of that? So thankfully, uh, you know, there's only it's only one day that we're actually at the White Castle. Mm. But whatever the uh, I can't remember their uh, fans of this would be mad at me for not remembering. But whatever that massive order that Harold and Kumar place. Right. So that was all on the table. And thankfully, we didn't have to eat all of that, but right. we, we ate a lot more than we thought we did. There were little spit buckets. Yeah, different actors have different approaches to this. I'm a glutton, so I like, whenever I have to eat something, I'm the idiot who the first 10 takes is like, ah, oh, this is, I don't need a spit bucket. I'm gonna swallow. This is awesome. I get to eat this. I'm getting paid for this. But then, like, right after take 10 or 11, it's like, oh, God, why did I do that? And no, no, I, I'm going to have to spit some of this out. <laughs> There's a ton of great material, Cal, in the book, particularly for anybody who's a minority trying to break into a business where there's not a lot of people that look like you. And trying to overcome that, I thought it was piercing insight from an actress who said that when she passed on your stuff to her agent, said, hey, he's a really good actor, but I can't rep him. Why not? He's not going to get any work. Like the, at the end of the day, he, there's there's no jobs for guys that look like him. And it's like, well, I, if I can't just play terrorists and cab drivers, can I make this thing work? And that leads to Van Wilder and this unbelievable story in which you are great in the audition. You're bringing it. And it's down to you and another guy. And you go, all right, I don't know who this guy is, but maybe he's a... And it's a white guy. It's a white guy <laughs> doing brown face. You're like, wait, I can't lose to this guy. How did that happen? How did that almost happen? <laughs> the, by the way, the reason that I tell these stories, uh, and it's clear because you you read the book, but for folks who are listening who don't know, and I described this in the audio book too, it's that I love how much entertainment has changed, especially in the last 10 years. Like the stuff that you can watch, especially on streaming platforms like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon is so much better than anything I think we could have fathomed 10 or 15 years ago. The types of stories, and obviously I'm, you know, diversity, of course, because I'm a performer of color, so it's amazing. But regardless of that, like you're getting to see the lives of characters that you just wouldn't have had the chance to see years ago. Like Bridgerton or, um, you know, Rami, like there's just amazing comedy, amazing drama. So this story, yeah, you're right. 
Um, <laughs> there was something called uh, the Brown Catch-22 that I, that I described, uh, which is basically like, all right, when you go to drama school or film school, right, it's like you're not you're not doing it because you want to be like the best black actor or the best Indian actor. You just like you like your shit. You like to do you like to do your thing. You you, you love storytelling. And so uh, when you start auditioning, every actor, no matter what they look like, really only gets to audition for what casting directors think they should play. So, you know, you're six, five and blonde. You're getting a lot of quarterback auditions. You're, but if you're a dude who looks like me, particularly in the late nineties, early, early two thousands, it's like, Oh, a, there are no roles, but B yeah, you can play like, you know, a, a cab driver, a store clerk, like little things. And I want to be clear. There's certainly no shame to these professions. Yep. Having an accent of any kind is not an automatic stereotype. The challenge is that a lot of times accents are required by producers to mask subpar writing. Right. And so like, okay, we know the joke isn't that funny. So what's something that audiences are used to laughing at? And they're like, Oh, do an accent. Right. So, so I, I think about this a lot because people are like, Oh, he had to play a cab driver. I'm like, you know, what you're actually saying is, he had to play a part where ethnicity and profession are merged and the characters have no agency in the plot. They're just like the quick butt of a joke. And the reason that that's a stereotype is that's connected to someone's race or ethnicity. So now that that lesson is out of the way, <laughs> uh, I was like, okay, well, I'll take some of these parts if it means that I'll get a credit on my resume, right? Because that's the only way that you can get your foot in the door and you hope to work your way up. So the Van Wilder audition comes around and my agent calls and she's like, okay, Awesome audition for you. Ryan Reynolds, Tara Reed. You're the number three, the supporting lead in this movie. And I was like, awesome. What's the name of the character? And she goes, his name is Taj Mahal. He's an exchange <laughs> student from India. And I hung up the phone on her. <laughs> and she was like, look, yeah. this is a big opportunity. Hopefully it leads to other work. And so I auditioned for it. And I wasn't sure if I was going to take it. Right. Because I was like, all right, it is actually a big role. The accent is not uh, as problematic in a movie like that because the character actually has an arc. He goes from point A to point B. The plot wouldn't advance without him. So in the audition process, I was like, if I get it, I'll decide whether I want to do it, right? And I knew it was between me and another dude. <laughs> and I I walk into the final callback and he, the other guy had gotten there before me. And I, I, I sign in and I look up and it's a white dude in brown face. Like he had painted his face brown. God. And uh, this is another, this is a hot topic nowadays because of the Fidel Castro movie. But right. James my Franco beef, being cast in that movie. Right. Yeah. So, so my beef is generally never with another actor. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason for that is there's, I, I understand the desperation of wanting a job in a, a profession you love. And so, you know, I was mostly just super fascinated about this dude. I was like, who told him to paint his face brown? What is it? Was it his agent? Like, was it him? Did he put his makeup on before he left the house? And if he did, did he have a higher chance of getting pulled over by the cops? Or did he sneak into the bathroom when he got to the audition and do it there? Like, what was the deal, right? And and he, you know, he turned out to... We, we, you know, we've made small talk in the waiting room, but I saw him and that decided it for me. I was like, oh, no, nah, bro, you're not allowed to have this part. Right. Like, I, I'm getting this part. I'm going to try to do justice to it. I'm going to try to have a blast and I'm going to get that credit on my resume so that I can build my career. Because a dude like that could audition for a hundred more things that I wasn't allowed to audition for because, right. you know, I can't paint my face lighter going in. <laughs> uh, so uh, so I ended up getting the part and I'm so grateful for it because Brian Reynolds especially was so freaking cool, man. He um, he encouraged me to improvise. He's like, hey, you're really funny. Let's just like riff on some of these and it was a real, it was a great learning curve in like how to navigate the, that kind of stuff early in my career. Yeah, your reaction to that when you said Taj Mahal, Badalunda, you're like a uh, huge cock, like big dick baller. Like, what's what the, do you guys know what you're writing here? But like, okay, yeah, for uh, for Hindi speakers, um, so Bada means huge, yeah. and hmm. Lund is the slang word for cock. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, did you mean to call him Taj Mahal, huge cock, or was that just a you know, I don't think they knew, by the way. I think no, they had random, to know. Beautiful they had to know. <laughs> that goes into another excellent topic of both uh, identity and gender and politics and sexual being. Because yeah. the story you tell about the Indian stripper named Sunny, I was laughing out loud. <laughs> because not that I'm a connoisseur of gentlemen's clubs, but you and I would agree. You do not normally see Indians in those areas. Now, that is not a profession Correct. you don't really see. So the fact that you're there... 
And your friends know that you're not into women, but that's fine. It's not public admission, whatever. You're just hanging out with your guys. <laughs> and the fact that she's like, oh, I'm Indian. Like, oh, my God. You're Indian and you're an Indian stripper. Uh, shocking. Yeah. And then the story went in a different direction. It was amazing, dude. This was a buddy's bachelor party in Vegas. And, and we, we go to the strip club. And uh, this was a few years after college. And, you know, my, my college buddies knew that I, that I, was, I was dating guys uh, at that point. And yeah. we all go out. We're having some beers. And this stripper sits down next to me. And we strike up a conversation. And she tells me, she's like, I'm Indian, too. And I was like, what? That's awesome, right? And I'm not sober at this point. My buddies then think that either she's like harassing me into getting a lap dance or that I, for some reason, feel pressured to talk to her. So they start coming over to, in their minds, like save me from this awful scenario. And I was like, stop right there. This woman is also South Asian. Also, she, she's a fan of Van Wilder, the movie. So I'm like, don't hate on the 16 year old me. This is the type of shit that the 16 year old me would dream about. Are you kidding? You go to a strip club with your college buddies and the stripper knows you and likes you. This has nothing to do with sexuality at all. This has to do with how amazing it is that something like that is possible in America. Right. So this is my moment. It's exactly. This is my moment. So they went off uh, and then they were just impressed. They're like the confidence that you have talking to this woman. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I guess. I don't know. So again, I'm like, I'm, I'm having more drinks. I'm not, not sober. She says something like, um, hey, how did your how did your parents feel about you becoming an actor? And I was like, you know, it's not why they moved to America. They wanted me to be a doctor, an engineer. And I was like, how about you? <laughs> how, did, how did your Indian parents feel about your profession? <laughs> And she she was like, oh, they actually don't know that I do this. Um, oh. I'm going to I'm in a Ph.D. program in, in psychology. And so this is just something I do on the side to uh, to make some cash. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Good for you. Uh, and then, you know, we keep making small. And when it was time to leave, uh, my friends were very, very impressed because I was still with full confidence. I was like, Sonny, it was really good to talk to you. Like, really nice to meet you. <laughs> You know, we should uh, we should hang out sometime. And I'm thinking like, you know, I'll I'll give her my number and maybe one of my buddies might connect with her or something. And so I stupidly, instead of taking her number, I wrote my number down on a napkin. It's <laughs> like, what a drunk, stupid bro move, right? Oh, here's my, number. here's my number. My buddies would love to hang out, too. And then but they were still impressed. She was on top of her game and like made eye contact, said bye to all my friends. And then right before I left, I said, it was so nice to meet you. And can I just say how refreshing it is to meet another <laughs> Indian American in a non-traditional profession? <laughs> and as soon as the nerdy ass words came out of my mouth, yeah. I turned around and all my buddies have these crestfallen faces. <laughs> Where it was like everything that I impressed them about the entire evening was just shattered. And what a gigantic nerd I am. They're like, really? Really? You're going to close with how refreshing it is that an Indian woman is also in a non-traditional profession in this line of work? You could have connected on any number of things. You already got that stuff out of the way. It was just so ridiculous. And, and by the way, the kicker to the story, the next morning, so we had one buddy who was sober. He also happens to be Indian. He was sober the whole night. We wake up the next day and I was like, oh, I'm sorry she never called. You know, it would have been fun to hang out with her and her friends afterwards. And my buddy goes, you do realize she was not actually Indian, right? I'm like, what? Like, oh, yeah, no, that, that chick was like Bolivian or something. I'm like, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was so dark. You guys were so hammered. She was so on her game yeah. that she was just trying to impress you so oh, that you would God. stick around longer. I'm like, no. That has to be, that, that can't be true. It's like, no, no, I'm telling you that woman yeah. was not actually Indian. And then I just had even more respect. I was like, <laughs> yes, yes, you you knew, you were just, all you were trying to do was serve the client. Whatever the She's client an wanted, yeah. you were just trying to meet them where they were at. And I had respect for that. Epic storytelling from Cal Penn. That's, That's what we got to read. You can't be serious. We'll close with a couple on President Obama because this was really cool what Cal did. He left the acting profession. You were doing a house and you had to talk to the creator. I believe was in Toronto as a lawyer at the time. David Shores. Yeah. Hey, listen, man, I, I know what it's like. I was a lawyer in Toronto. I get it. You got to do your thing. Do your thing. The story you tell, though, about applying for the job on the website and the first lady's reaction and then President Obama's reaction is hysterical. 
So if the only thing that you know about me is that I played a stoner and or a doctor and then worked for Obama, the very logical question is how the hell were you qualified <laughs> to do that? And the longer some answer, range, that's some range. It, my it's thank you. Thank you. I tried. Uh, you will the, the shameless plug, but also the fact you'll you'll have to like listen to the audiobook or buy the real thing. It's a long story. Correct. But the, the abridged version is I had worked on the Obama campaign mostly as a volunteer because Olivia Wilde had kind of recruited me into into doing this. I had a great time. It was really eye opening. I had no desire to ever do anything like this before, but I was inspired at the time. And then there was a, an opportunity to apply for a White House job. So anyone who worked on uh, and this is across the board for most political campaigns. But if you worked on the Obama campaign, you got an email that said, uh, hey, so he's now the president elect. If you want to consider working for the incoming administration, here's a link to a website <laughs> called change.gov. Upload your resume and we'll call you if you're qualified. So I thought like, OK, cool. This this sounds cool. I, I guess I'll apply. I certainly don't want to bother anybody who I worked with over the last year, year plus on the campaign to tell them because then it'll seem like, oh, he's an actor. and He thinks that he's qualified to work at the White House. I'm like, they'll call me if I like they know I spent a year working on the campaign. They'll call me. Nobody called. The only person I told that I did this was my my acting manager, um, who I've only had one manager in my acting career last 20 years. He's the only person I told. And nobody ever called. So then, like, jump ahead to inauguration. And there was an inauguration concert that uh, I had the chance to go to. I could bring a few friends and family, brought my parents, brought my manager. And backstage, uh, you know, you got to say hi to the incoming first family. So said hi to the, the president-elect, said hi to, the, the, to Mrs. Obama. And Mrs. Obama says to me something that I, I assumed she was saying to everybody, which was, uh, hey, Cal, thanks so much for your help during the campaign. Hope you stay involved. And I was just like, yeah, no, definitely plan to. Thank you so much, Mrs. Obama. My manager, who's standing next to me, goes, stay involved. Well, you know, he applied for a job, right? And I was like, yo, no, no, no. This is not how this works. Please don't do this, man. And and my manager is like, I describe him this way in the book, too. He He's like every character from the HBO show Entourage in one person. So, like, Heart of Gold, also a lion when he has to be. Also just a completely ridiculous beautiful human being so he said that and michelle obama goes uh what do you mean uh and i said no no no, nothing don't don't worry about it and he doubles down he goes yeah yeah he applied for a job at the white house and nobody even called it back oh god i'm like i was like no dude please why are you doing this so then mrs obama turns to me and she goes what who who did you apply with and without even thinking, I just blurted out, uh, I put my resume on change.gov, you know, the website <laughs> from the email. And she looks at me like, it, whether you love or hate Michelle Obama is irrelevant. You do recognize that she has a low threshold for bullshit. And she gave me this look that I think you give people if like, imagine somebody dropped a piece of pizza on the floor, cheese down, and then picked it up and ate it anyway. That was like the look that she gave me. And she goes, uh, uh-huh. Hey, Barack, come here. <laughs> And he comes over and no, she goes, the best oh, she said, hey, Barack, he kind of gave the, yeah, I already talked to Cal. Like, I'm good. Yeah, no, she was adamant. She's like, no, no, come here. <laughs> and he goes, she goes, uh, hey, tell him what you told me. And I was like, oh, God. I was like, well, sir, look, I, I did apply for a, a White House job. You know, if I could be helpful, I'd be happy to, happy to do it. <laughs> and he goes, oh, no way. Who'd you apply with? <laughs> And that was when I realized how absurd. I was like, well, I put my resume on change.gov. <laughs> and unlike Mrs. Obama, Mr. Obama gave me a smirk, like the cocky smirk that you know he's very capable of, and for good reason. Mm -hmm. And he's like, man, why didn't you just call somebody? <laughs> and so he called over his personal aide, Reggie Love, and, and I knew Reggie, and I knew this guy, Chris Liu, who, who uh, was helping with hiring. And he said, let's uh, somebody will call you this week because we'd, we'd love to discuss it. And it turned out that they were still hiring. They were looking for a position in the outreach office on somebody who had experience working on uh, youth outreach, which is essentially what I did on the campaign, uh, arts outreach. And I was part of the arts policy committee and then Asian American Pacific Islander outreach, which I also had a background in. Uh, so the timing of that w worked out well. The point of, the point of telling that story, aside from that's that, hilarious, is like. Okay, yes, it's funny and stupid because A, I'm an idiot, and B, it's the leader of the free world. But the, the story behind the story is like, you know, I, I feel like for a lot of us that find ourselves in these absurd situations, like imagine in the case of me working for the Obama campaign, I joined when it was a tiny, tiny organization. 
And so I would liken that to imagine you, you're working for a small startup or you're a young entrepreneur and you're, you're working your heart out for a year, year and a half. And then you're either able to sell your company or the company excels and expands to such a degree. If you want to continue working for the new iteration of your company, don't just put your resume into a pile and assume that people know. Right? You need to you need to call the people you worked with. And here's why. What Mrs. Obama's look and, and the president's laugh indicated was not that it was silly. Of course it was silly. But it was that their presumption by me applying but not making it known that I was interested was that perhaps I wasn't actually interested. Like maybe I just felt like I had to check the box and put my name in the hat, but I wasn't yeah. actually passionate about it. So when they realized I was passionate about it, the idea there was you've worked for a year plus on expanding an organization that we're very proud of. If you're also proud of it, you already have the skill set to help us continue to build this out. So that applies to any job, right? And I think for a lot of us, it's like sometimes it's that that thing called imposter syndrome. You're like, oh man, I can't believe I'm in this room. Am I actually qualified? Do I deserve to be here? Yeah. The flip side to that is like, when people are like, oh, I've worked, I've worked here for six months. How come I'm not a vice president? It's like, well, calm down, buddy. You got to pay your dues. But the reality lies somewhere in the middle. And that's why I tell this story is like, hey, it's hilarious, obviously. And it's so stupid. I was so dumb. But the lesson from that is one that I wish I had had when I was in college, which is like, how do you navigate something? No, and your persistence is amazing. How about your agent, too, by the way? Oh, I mean, the man, oh, yeah, as, no, as much Dan, as we want to talk, like, that's a good move. Yeah, Dan gets the credit for that one. All right, last one, because we've gone over time. But Chris and I are massive sports fans, so we need to know, how big an Uber sports fan is Barack Obama? Because the way we picture it is, every morning, he's watching SportsCenter. He's constantly watching games. There's foreign policy being discussed. Sorry, guys, i got to watch the White Sox game. Like, how, <laughs> how, how big a sports fan is he? <laughs> I've never, uh, I've never uh, heard of him canceling in a meeting to to watch uh, a game. But I will say, I, I feel like if you're if you're a president of a country, if you're a president of a company, you know what time the game's going to be on. You can just schedule your meetings around it. Yeah. What, what's somebody going to say? No. So, uh, sorry, sir. I know you're trying to watch Game Six, but you know. <laughs> Do the meeting before the game. That's fine. <laughs> I think he was always planning things very well. The book is tremendous, as is Cal Penn. You can't be serious. Paperback book available. Those are just a sum of a sampling. What a great read this is. How funny he is. My only criticism of the book, and this is why Cal is going to write a sequel, is I want a lot more on the namesake. That beautiful film you made. It's one of the best movies you made. There's only two pages. I want stories about Irfan Khan and Marinier. It's it's a gorgeous film, and I really think it's the best work you've ever done. And you said that in the book. You said that is the best we have done. So I want a sequel. I want stories about that book. Thank you. Happy to share. There's a lot. <laughs> that was awesome, Cal. Thank you. And Chris, thanks a lot. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right. Thanks again to Cal. That guy was awesome. Uh, as I messaged Chris during the interview, I said, this is a shame this has to end now because we could literally go for an hour. But we got most of the stuff in. I think, I mean, I, the, the book is tremendous. And that's that's my biggest thing, right? I'm trying to sell the book for the guys. I think if you hear that interview, you go, oh my God, this book's amazing, which it is. So go buy the book and support Cal Penn.
I can't believe it. like the visual of like them shooting that movie at White Castle and there's like a sp- there's like a can for them oh. spitting it out because like they're eating so many White Castle burgers is kind of hilarious. Yeah, he seems strikes as a pretty healthy guy, so I didn't want to offend him. But I, I had White Castle for the first time uh, when I took my kids to the movies. Which Mike Rupp, the Stanley Cup champion, said to me, because that's like eating Taco Bell at a gas station. You can't do that. I go, okay, fine. I'll give it another chance. But it was awful. Are you about to badmouth White Castle? It, it was awful, Cody. Like, oh, no, you're awful. They're great. It was a slider. The meat to bun ratio was absurdity. Wait, did you do, you bought them or you went to a White no, Castle? No, I bought you at the movie frozen? theater. They go two sliders from White Castle for $3.99. Oh, okay. So like they're probably doing the same ones I have at my house, the little two-pack. Yeah. yeah. Horrible. Yeah. But I will give it a second chance and eat it. And I, will, I will eat it at the actual White Castle. Because that is a fair point by Rupert. He was like, that's like eating Taco Bell at a gas station. I'm like, okay. You're just eating the frozen version right. of it, because like the ones you can get at Publix. Right. Like you're not like going to what? Yeah, there's got to be a difference. Right. So I will, I will try the fresh White Castle Reserve. Although I've eaten those frozen ones and don't, I don't, I don't agree with you. Yes, exactly. You still like the frozen ones. I mean, Shake Shack in a route for me. But anyways, we'll do this another time. The Captain. Everyone's fired up, right? Seven-part documentary. Who doesn't love the Captain? Jeter, ultimate winner. Awesome. Here's the problem. Boring guy, okay? Not an exciting guy. Uh, the Last Dance, as Chris and I have talked about, because we had Jason Hare on this podcast, I'm not a Jordan guy. Uh, prior to the Raptors' inception, I like the Knicks. Jordan freaking lit up the Knicks every time. I hate that. He's scoring 50 at the Garden. It sucks. I think he's arrogant. I think he's conceited. I don't think he's a good husband. I think he gambles too much. I think he drinks too much. I think he's a crappy owner. I think he gave one of the worst Hall of Fame speeches ever. But you know what Michael Jordan is? He's incredibly compelling. Because the guy was an incredible basketball player. Either he's the best or second best of all time. And he's ferocious and he's cocky. Arrogant. And get in your face. I'm like, yeah. yeah. I'm like, that. it was a great interview subject. And I'm like, Jordan is always interesting to hear. He's drinking Drink, throughout drinking. it. <laughs> yeah, this guy doesn't care. Watching clips on his yeah. iPad. Like, like it, it was yeah. a compelling documentary. Absolutely. Add to that amazing soundtrack. And Hare really realized, this is the smartest thing he did, was that each part of the documentary was focusing on different people. So if you're not a big Jordan guy, no problem. I got a Sky Pippen episode for you, which was riveting. I got a Steve Kerr episode with stuff about his dad you probably didn't know. Amazing. Phil Jackson, all the Zen stuff. Rodman, Carmen Electra. Awesome. So if you don't just like Jordan, the whole team is interesting. The captain doesn't do that. There's no episode on Tory. There's no episode on Pettit. There's no episode on Clemens. It's just Jeter, who again, could not be a more vanilla guy. I, I don't know how much I learned about Jeter. I knew everything about this. Grew up biracial in Kalamazoo. Can be a Yankees fan because his grandmother liked the Yankees. He'd spend the weekends with her. His first year, he made 56 errors in single A. Came up, was a champion. All he cares about is winning. Team first. Yeah. Closeted. Um, not particularly fun guy. I don't want to tell the media anything. Right, doesn't trust anybody. Purpose. Maybe that's my thing. But when I meet somebody, I think, what do they want from me? I'm like, yeah, he is so guarded. He's not interesting for a seven-hour documentary. What's the point of doing the documentary? I thought the whole point was, have always been guarded. I'm going to open up. I'm going to be the real me. I'm going to show you what it's like to be Dark Cheater. No, he's still the same. Cheater still gives the same canned blanket responses. And I'm like, look, like one of the things where I was like, all right, let's see here. This is a thing where he could be, he could tell us something like his nightlife. Like, cause he was always a party guy in New York. I'm like, all right, they're getting to it. He's getting famous. He's got famous friends. I'm like, give it to me, Jeter. Tell me you showed up to one game hungover. Just tell me something interesting. And it's just like, yeah, I had fun, but I was always ready to play the next day. It's like, okay, like, what are we doing here? It's like, you're just like with me. You're just like slapping me in the face like, hey, I'm getting paid for this right now, but still not giving you anything. Even though this is my doc saying how I never gave you anything, not even giving you anything here either. <laughs> Hall of Fame player, Hall of Fame dater. Mariah Carey, yeah. Jessica Biel, Jessica Alba, Priyanka Chopra, married to yeah. Hannah Jeter, gorgeous. I'm like, can you give me yeah. any of the stories on them? I'm like, no. Like the, the last dance had Carmen Electra talking about Robin. It was great. We, you got to get Mariah yeah. in this. You got to give me Jessica yeah. Alba. It's one of these girls. No. I think he had say, right? He didn't want them in it, like, right? It was, it was kind of like, I mean, the Jordan doc, I agree, was just better, but it also had the like Jordan did have like kind of final say, yeah, he did. so there wasn't which was one of the weaknesses. There was, nothing, the there wasn't yeah. a lot in there about the NBA and gambling Correct. and like whether his his retirement, right. like that was kind of. And that's what Ken Burns, who I love, criticized. He goes, "Well, it's not a real documentary because Jordan has so much say. There's nothing negative about him. Like he's just always chopping right. everything out." But my thing is, right. but when you see Jordan as he is, you can see his negativity. You can see how right. uh, petty he is and the gripes he. And that kind of stuff. So I'm like, but. And it's just like, I can only hear so many times his mom say, he told me when he was seven, he wanted to be the right. shortstop for the Yankees. Right. It's like, okay, like. Yeah. It's all I ever wanted to be. I just got it. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Yeah. I, I mean, you could have done more stuff like on his dad. Like, that's pretty. Like, at one point, uh, I think Gerald Williams, who passed away, which was, you know, very sad. And, and Jeter, you think he'd get emotional in that moment? But he's like, yeah, we lost you. That was tough. He's a great guy. He was a great friend. I'm like, Go, show me some emotion, man. Yeah. But, but Joe Williams goes yeah. like, you got to think of Charles Jeter. He's like, he grew up in Alabama. Black guy married a white woman. Like, that's a pretty interesting story. Like, we should have had Charles Jeter telling his story. Like, 
And, and the fact that Jeter played shortstop because his dad played shortstop. Like, maybe, give me more on his dad. Give me more on his sister and his mom. And I don't know, Bertie Williams, somebody. Like, there's lots of guys on the team. And instead, they're all just talking about how they were winning, how great they were. And I'm like, all right. The, the only things that are interesting, episode three or four, is they get into the A-Rod stuff. Yes. And, and say this about A-Rod. But even that, yeah. he's just like, oh, he, I liked him, and then he crossed me, and I don't like him anymore. It was just like, okay. Yeah, the best line <laughs> is from Mark Feinstein, who works for the MLB Network. He said all the writers said it was kind of like the Godfather. They were like, Jeter's like Michael. Like, you cross him once, and you're dead to you. And he's like, we're not going to say who Fredo was. And I text him. Well, obviously, we all know A-Rod was Fredo. You know, everyone, why doesn't anyone like me? You know, but that's what it was like. And it's like, I, and I, I like the point the other people made. A-Rod's like, you know, I made a mistake. I was young. I didn't grow up with a dad. I was insecure. You know, I made a comment. He didn't like it, and I apologize. I went the A Rod doc would probably be better with all the I drama. Because I think A Rod will give you more. I think he's there. Will be one. There will be one. Yeah, like you see what you want about A Rod. Okay, I got it. People say he's a phony or he loves himself or whatever. But I actually think he's compelling. I think he's interesting. I think he's got good stories. I think he'll. He's grown. Yeah. Like I think he can talk about his old self now in a way yeah. where he's actually going to be critical and stuff. Where Jeter's just like I was. Always, I've always been perfect. Yeah. Yeah, Jeter, you're right. Jeter has zero regrets. He actually, the last part, seventh part, he says, I've had zero regrets because that's the way life is. I'm like, you know, that's just not interesting. Whereas A-Rod will nope. say, at that point, I was wrong. Yeah. I went to Jeter's house. I said, sorry, yeah. whatever. And Jeter's like, listen, I get it, man. You're 25. You make mistakes. But then he did it twice. I'm like, okay, fine. In a Sports Illustrated article, A-Rod took a shot at Jeter. And then on the Dan Patrick show, took another jab. I'm like, you're that sensitive? Like, he's a good friend. And he's right, by the way. But A-Rod was there the were guy, there were There were bigger threats in those lineups than Jeter. Yes, Jeter was always the steady, bat 300, score 100 runs, steal 20 bases for like a million years. So it's a great career. But he was hardly, like, name that. Like, when was he ever the best player on the Yankees? Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe he was the second at one point, but like he was always like they always had a number three hitter or four hitter that was like right. more feared. And that's all A-Rod was saying. Yes. Like when you face the Yankees, you're not game planning around Jeter. You're like, no, let's let's avoid Giambi and yeah, like Bernie. The only person the only person Jeter went at was poor Chad Curtis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's he's cool. like, nobody liked Chad Curtis. It's like, wow, he's finally yeah. he's like, I'm going to rip somebody today. And it's Chad Curtis. Yeah. The only stuff that ends up being interesting is some of the writers. Uh, again, I work with Joel Sherman. He was really good. Buster only. Like Buster at one point criticizes him and says that like later on Jeter should not have been hitting leadoff for second. He's like he was not that good a player. He should have gone to Joe Girardi and said, bat me lower. And then it's funny, it goes right to Jeter. He goes, What kind of asinine shit is that? He's like, if they make that decision, you go, hey, no problem. I'm doing it for the team. But you don't voluntarily demote yourself. He's like, that's not what right. makes you a leader. So I'm like, yeah, I'll give Jeter that one. I'm like, I I I, I love Buster, yeah. but like, I wouldn't I wouldn't take myself out of the lineup. I play as long as I can. Right. Eventually, Cody's a coach because Virk, you're not playing well. I'm like, okay. You do, right. I'll do whatever you say. But you don't go, ah, I think I suck. I'm going to take a knee. I give Jeter that one. Wallace Matthews, probably the most controversial remark, talking about race, and he refers to Jeter as colorless. And the remark is so poorly received, you see A, Jeter get pissed. Like, what is that guy even talking about? I think he drops an F-bomb. At least a couple of profanities. He's like, he doesn't know me. He's like, just because I didn't talk about race with him, he doesn't know what I feel about race, et cetera. Then goes to his dad. Dad's pissed. Colorless, what does that mean? The mom talks, called. then they get the sister, like, okay, they definitely got their villain. Wally Matthews, this one guy made this comment, and I get that, like, you grow up biracial. I thought one of the best points Jeter made was, he goes, people say, well, when Sheffield memorably said on HBO, he goes, Tory doesn't treat the black guys the same way. And Andrew Kramer was like, what about Derek Jeter? And Sheffield goes, who? He's, he's like, Derek Jeter. He goes, he's half. And she was like, uh... And, and, and the Jeter City goes, listen, Sheffield, I cleared it up, and we're fine. Sheffield's point was, dude, you're not fully black. The black guys, Tori doesn't treat well. You're different. And, but Jeter, I like this point. He goes, listen, buddy, if you're half black, you're black. Nobody's looking at me as half white. You're kind of like white. But I thought that Sheffield's point was interesting. He was trying to right, say that I, you are yeah. not fully, you are not the same as me. Let's make that clear. Like, that is not the same. And I think if they had delved into that territory, which is a little bit difficult and a little bit painful, that would have been right. interesting. But they really yeah. didn't want to do that. It was very surfacy. Again, I thought Hannah Jeter was interesting. The seventh episode, she talks about difficult pregnancy and uh, uh, baby blues and depression. Anxiety. That was fascinating. I'm like, yeah, give me more of her. Like, she was like, you don't know understand. Like, Jeter retired, and now Derek's running the Marlins, and I'm trying to raise a family, and like, I'm, I'm, I've got a lot going on here. So they do get I, – I, I hate to – we're reviewing this, but I didn't see the last episode. Do they get into the Marlins stuff? Yeah, so I thought, again – and this was probably more interesting because this stuff I really didn't know much about. That gave us a little bit more on this. Okay, he only wanted to be an owner if it was Miami or Tampa. Cool. Miami shows up. It feels like it's a good spot, but he doesn't actually have the money to own a team, as you and I know. Owners, they have billions. He doesn't have billions, but he'll be the figurehead. He's the CEO. Okay, let's do this. And he comes in, boom, rips the bandaid off. As you know, Stanton's gone. Yelich is gone. All right, young players. 
The thing he felt great about was making the playoffs in 2020. He goes, and don't give me this shortened season stuff. In three years, we made the playoffs. Nobody thought that would happen. And he goes, I, yes. and I get it. The South Florida fan base is like, you guys won, you tore down. You won, you tore down. And now you're stripping down. But Jeter goes, no matter what, the fans had not shown up. So I knew coming in, we've got to make this work and make the team build and be patient. And we were, had a process. Like, yep. We made the playoffs. Great. That 2021 was a bad year because that was a big step back for us. And that really took the winner of the sales. And I had a, a direction the way I wanted to go. And the other ownership wanted to go in a different direction. And I said, this is not what I signed up for. I'm done. And again, that's the Jeter thing. Like, and I give him credit on that because he says, I have integrity. I have principles. And I think you and I can read between the lines. He's saying, all right, I stripped it down. Let's go win. Let's go sign some guys down. They're like, eh, let's just keep it the way it is. He's like, no, no, no. Like, we get a pounce now. And I think he was like, okay, I'm just going to bounce. I'm not going to be an owner of a team that's not going to be competing. Because ultimately, he yeah. is a very competitive guy. And... Yeah. Great pitching staff. Young pitchers, as you know, they have built. Like, it's kind of weird. Like, someone said he failed as an owner. I'm like, no, I, I, it's N.A. Like, I don't know. I actually think he did, probably did some good things. You would know better than me. The Ozuna trade got us Alcantara. Yeah, exactly. Like, he, they got some studs over those pitchers. So, I'm like, I, I think he was building something. But I don't know what will happen next. But uh, that is the captain. Listen, I, I respect the hell out of him. I think he's one of the greatest shortstops of all time. But, again, if you're just asking as a movie, as a compelling story, I do not think the captain is up there with the last dance for many other 30 for 30 documentaries that you could watch there on ESPN. Uh, I'll give it to me, please. Let's move on. Do a little Jack here, okay? Old movies. I'll fly through these. The Postman always rings. All right, rings. We, got, we got four to do. Let's do All right. This. The Postman <laughs> always rings twice. I'll do an order that I saw them. So this is the first one I saw on the Tuesday night. The sensuous wife of a lunch wagon proprietor and a rootless drifter begin a sordidly steamy affair and conspire to murder her Greek husband. Mamet wrote the script, which is the first time I'm like, oh, I'm going to support my boy Mamet. But it does not feel like a Mamet script. You can normally tell when it's a Mamet script. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, heist, films of that ilk. Uh, but this was an early one for him, 1981. So 40th anniversary came out last year. It's actually a remake of the original. I thought it was a very good film noir, particularly the first hour. Nicholson shows up. Great cameo by Christopher for Lloyd. They stop at a gas station and they go in and Nicholson orders some food, goes to the bathroom. Christopher Lloyd takes off. Nicholson comes back. Goes, Did you see my friend? He's like, no. He's like, what? He's like, he just deserted me. Which at first feels like a prank. I'm like, are they, are they trying to rob this guy? But, but it actually is what happened. Christopher Lloyd just took off. So he orders his food. He goes, he took my wallet. I have no wallet. Okay. Owner goes, no problem. Do you know anything about cars? Yeah. You can work in my shop for a while. Okay, cool. He's just working as a mechanic. Ends up seeing his wife, Jessica Lang. Very attractive. Okay, let's have an affair. It's got to be one of the most awkward sex scenes I've ever seen. Like, what, what the movie is known for, somebody asked you, would be steamy sex scenes, Nicholson, Lang, but it, it's borderline abusive. Like, he attacks her like a wolf. And she, I mean, I'm telling you, no means no. She's pushing him away. No, no, no. And he's like, grabbing her. I'm like, I couldn't imagine how he takes the did of that because it is, it is squeamish to watch, particularly in this day and age. But it is steamy. Eventually, she relents and bam. Okay, hey, I want to be with you. I want to be with you too. How about we kill my husband? Uh, they hang people for that. We're going to do it. Okay, fine. She smashes him with a bag of coins late at night, hurts him, hospitalized but not dead. Eventually, Nicholson's like, no, we're going to kill this guy. All right. What a brutal way to attack your brutal husband. Bag Jesus. Of coins. This is like you know. a bag of coins. So they're driving. He's hammered after a night out. Nicholson takes a club, hammers the guy back in the head twice. They push the car into the canyon. Then Nicholson goes, all right, we have to look like we're messed up. Punches her. I'm like, whoa, just hammers her. Cold cocks. I'm like, Jesus. Then she slaps him, cuts him, whatever. I'm like, all right, God. <laughs> Cops pick them up, obviously. The one guy's like, listen, I know you did it. You robbed the guy. You're with his wife, etc." They go to the court case. Court case, they get off. I won't get into the details exactly. They get off. The movie then gets very strange. And now it was like two in the morning. So I was kind of very kind of sleepy. I wasn't sure where I was. And I looked up and I saw Angelica Houston, who was Jack Nicholson's former uh, partner, as a lion tamer. And I'm like, what is going on right now? Are they in the circus? Like what? But when I watched it again lucidly, yes, she's a lion tamer. And I don't need to get into details here, but Jack Nicholson has a little flame with her. Jessica Lange finds out about it because she drops off a lion cub at their place. Probably part of the plot I would have taken out. Second half, not really as strong as the first half. I'll still give it three Maple Leafs. Those are definitely some steamy, memorable scenes between the two of them. And if you like Nicholson, obviously a very good film noir. That is The Postman Always Rings Twice. That brings us to the second one I saw, which was The Last Detail, which I was so fired up to see. Two Navy men are ordered to bring a young offender to prison, but decide to show him one last good time along the way. It's directed by Hal Ashby, who was a guy that loved to smoke his weed. If you ask me Hal Ashby, I go, he directed Coming Home with John Voight in 1978 and Jane Fonda. I know he smoked a lot of weed. I also loved his dog. The writer, Robert Town. We've talked about Robert Town before with our boy, Sam Wasson, because, of course, Robert Town wrote Chinatown. So this is one of his other great scripts. And all I've heard about the last detail is it's really funny, it's very raunchy, 
And it's a real example of Robert Town, the writer, and Jack Nicholson delivering his lines so nobody can. Here's an example of some of these lines, by the way. And it's Nicholson and another guy. They pick up Randy Quaid, Randy Quaid before he went nuts, and they're taking him. The last detail is they're taking him across the country to go put him basically into prison. And it's like, you're going to be eight years in prison, but with a good time, you get six. But Nicholson's got a good heart. He's like, you know what, man? Let's just show you a good time before you go to prison. So that's, that's the essence of the plot. They stop at a bar, let's have a few drinks, let's go to a whorehouse, et cetera. Here's some of the lines. At one point, when they go to a whorehouse, Nicholson's like, hey, let's have this guy have a good time. And he starts talking to the girls. He goes, if this guy gets pussy out of this, I'll eat my fucking flat hat. At one point, Randy Quay gets upset. Nicholson says, don't get your balls in an uproar. When later on, they're really feeling good. He goes, drop your socks, grab your cocks, we're going to a party. And one of the most memorable parts of the entire movie, this is 1974, so a lot of people were not talking like this. One of the most memorable parts of the movie, Nicholson starts telling a story about there was a whore who had a glass eye, and she would take the glass eye and wink people off for a dollar. <laughs> I was dying. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that is the last detail. If that kind of humor is your fancy, you'll love it. Jack Nicholson, Randy Quaid, Robert Townscript, Hal Ashby. It's available on HBO Max. Five Easy Pieces. It's a beautiful film. I saw this years ago. It is a really impactful film and a very sad film. Uh, a dropout from upper-class America picks up work along the way on oil rigs when his life isn't spent in a squalid succession of bars, motels, and other points of interest. Bob Rafelson directed it. I mentioned it off the top. He co-wrote it. He recently passed away at the age of 89. It's the best movie he did. He also produced Easy Rider, and it stars Jack Nicholson playing Bobby Dupia. And I remember thinking as a kid, I saw maybe 16, I go, this is like one well, of the best Jack Nicholson movies I'm ever going to see. And um, he plays a guy who was you know, a renowned pianist, a guy who could be a real star. He was from that upper-class family. For whatever reason, dropped out when he did his own thing. So he's one of these guys, a drifter, working on oil rigs, sad, detached, has this uh, you know, toxic relationship with Karen Black, ends up going back to see his family because his father's ill, and he reconnects with his sister. And he's just got so much anger that he's working through and so much frustration. And there's one scene, I mean, it is Jack Nicholson showing the height of his acting talent. As I mentioned, the last detail shows his humor and how raunchy it could be. The Postman Rings Twice shows how he could be seedy and intense. Five Easy Pieces really shows you what a great actor Jack Nicholson is because he shows you his vulnerability and sensitivity. This character is so angry. He's got so much rage at himself, at his family. But that scene where he's talking to his father trying to reconcile with him, that's as good as screen acting gets. And he's got one scene. I texted Rogowski because he goes, oh, my God, I love five. He goes, I've been trying to find it. I go, HBO Max. And he texted me. I'll order the chicken sandwich minus the chicken. There's a great scene in the diner where he's trying to get a side order of toast. And she goes, we don't have toast. He's like, what do you mean you don't have toast? She's like, we don't have toast. He's like, okay, I'll order a chicken sandwich minus the chicken. She's like, you want, he's like that way I can get my toast. Like, it's, it's a really funny scene That's hilarious. as the anger starts rising. But I love the ending of Five Easy Pieces. He goes and sees his father who's dying. His dad doesn't know who he is. He's trying to reconcile with him. He realizes he doesn't want to be there. He wants to have an affair with another girl. He realizes it's all shitty and pissy. He's just angry at life. He leaves. Him and his girl leave. Karen Black. Karen Black loves him even though she realizes she shouldn't be with him. They stop at a gas station. I never forgot this ending. They stop to get gas. She goes inside for a second. He goes in the bathroom, just stares himself in the mirror. One of those really self-conscious shots. A trucker pulls up. He gets in the truck. You can see them having a conversation outside. This is a wide shot. He goes in, and the trucker goes, it's going to be cold. You don't have a jacket? He's like, no. He's like, where are we going? It's pretty cold. He's like, yeah, that's okay. He's like, all right, suit yourself. He's like, yeah. And he leaves his girlfriend and goes in a truck with a trucker to parts unknown. And the last shot is her walking out, just looking around dazed. And I'm like, what a devastatingly sad movie. So this guy never realized... Wait, he's just like done with it? He's just like, I hate life right Correct. now? I'm just he, done with just, her now. He's just, just giving go. up on life. He's just quitting on life. I'm like, that is a sad, hopeless ending. But it's one that I never forgot. It was so resonant. I thought it was so true to that character. It's one of those endings you can never see today, right? A studio have a watch and go, wait, hang on a second. This movie's about a guy right. to reconcile this family. He just leaves? He just, just, he just gives up on life? I'm like, well, either he's going to commit suicide or he's going to get in the truck. So which one do you want him to do? Okay, I guess I'll get in the truck. Because otherwise, he would choose the other exit. It's a really, really powerful ending. I loved it. Last one. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, this is on the AFI list. Top 100 films of all time. Hadn't seen it in a long time. It's absolutely amazing. I'm sure you have heard of it. Hopefully you've seen it. Chris has definitely heard of this one. A criminal pleads insanity and is admitted to a mental institution where he rebels against the oppressive nurse and rallies up the scared patients. It's directed by Milos Forman. Won a ton of Oscars. Off the top of my head, I believe it won picture, director. I know Nicholson won for actor. Louise Fletcher won for actress. I know there's been a ratchet remake. I believe Sarah Paulson was in that. My wife was telling me that. Uh, but it's amazing. I mean, everything about this movie is 
special. I think it's as great a film as you can see from the 1970s. One Best Picture back in 1975. There's never a wasted moment. It's two hours. It's nice and lean. The first time you see Nicholson, he's got such movie star charisma. My wife's watching. She goes, he's not handsome. There's something about him. I'm like, yeah. She goes, the receding hairline's not great. She goes, but that smile, those arched eyebrows. I'm like, yeah, that's Nicholson. That's when Jack's doing that thing. I think later on in his career, it became too much of Jack Nicholson doing Jack Nicholson. Particularly Batman, right? It's just over-the-top Jack Nicholson. You're like, okay, I've seen this before. And in fairness to him, once you've been an actor for 50 years, it's tough to reinvent yourself. But I think in Cuckoo's Nest, that was the first time you really saw Jack being Jack in a fresh way. Nobody could play the rascally rebel better than him. Like a counterculture rebel with that smile and that glint in his eyes like, hey guys, come along for the ride. Here's a fun time with me. Nobody could do that like Jack Nicholson. And sometimes you say, that's just movie star shit. That's just that movie star charisma. Either you got it or you don't. And he had it in spades. And it's a real underdog movie. You know, if you love Dead Poet Society, if you love Goodwill Hunting, those are movies about underdogs overcoming feats. That's what One Flew the Cuckoo's Nest is. This is a guy coming into a mental institution telling these guys, hey man, you guys aren't as crazy as you think you are. You deserve better than this. Nurse Ratchet's an evil woman. She's giving you guys medication, trying to keep you guys down. Think for yourself. Have free thought. You know, do other things. And he actually allows them to have a glimpse of hope and a glimpse of what life can be beyond just the medication and the sadness of being in a mental institution. There's some great humor in there. There's lots of funny lines. You know, how pissed Nicholson is. He just wants to watch the World Series. I forgot. Ten minutes in, he's arguing with Nurse Ratchet. Can we just watch the World Series? And he's like, we'll have to take a vote. They take a vote. Only three guys vote. He's like, all right, fine. Later on, he votes again. Nine of them all vote yes. She goes, I'm sorry, uh, you know, that, that's not enough. He's like, what? I want to watch the World Series. He's like, I want to watch the goddamn World Series tonight. It's a goddamn American thing to do. Nine hands are raised. She goes, there's 18 people on this ward. And he looks around and he goes, there's no way. Like, those people are catatonic. He starts going to each of them and they're like truly crazy in that term. He's like, uh, uh. He looks at one guy. He's like, mm, no, no, no. He goes to the chief. And the chief, he's like, chief, raise your hand. And he goes, he can't hear you. He's like, chief, raise your hand. We've got to watch the World Series tonight. He goes, chief, look at me. Raise your hand. Just do this. I know you can't hear me. Raise your hand. Just do this. And chief raises, come on, we did it. And she's like, no, no, we already closed it down. I, I, the vote ended five minutes ago. You can't just give him a vote now. He was like, all right. And what does he do? He uses the power of imagination. That's what you do when you're in an institution like that. They start sitting around the TV and he goes, here's Koufax. He winds up, and there's a drive deep to left. Oh my God, it's gone. They're like, ah! And they all start going crazy. Like, oh, crazy. He's like, all right. And he starts reenacting another scene. All right, here's Mickey Mantle. And there's a drive. Ah! They start going nuts. And again, it shows you how smart he is, McMurphy's character, Mac as they call him, giving them the power of imagination, allowing them to be free of spirits, allowing them to overcome the doldrums which exist beyond them. It's a heartbreaking ending. I mean, the scene where he brings in a couple of girls they end up getting drunk uh, one of the inmates as Nicholson's about to leave he says listen I just want to be with a girl just once he's like alright fine he goes to his girlfriend's like hey just, just show him a good time we'll be good he said, like, just one time all the other patients are so happy ooh here we go but of course the plan ends in nightmarish fashion Nicholson gets blitzed the next morning, Nurse Ratchet walks in. The place is a disaster. It looks like a house party. Bottles of booze everywhere. Sleep on the floor. Like, what the hell happened? Right? She sees the open window. Okay, what happened? She goes in the room and sees the guy with Nicholson's girlfriend. And they all start cheering, whooping and hollering. And Nurse Ratchet, icy, stares him down. I'm going to tell your mother about this. Like, that's what you say to a mental patient. She goes, I'm going to tell your mother. He's like, no, I'm going to tell your mother about this. Did you, you had alcohol? You had sex with this woman? Like, I'm going to tell him, no, please, 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 no, 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 no. Okay, who did this? McMurphy. Cut to Sean Nicholson. Who they, by the way, already used electric shock therapy on once before because they know this guy's obviously a rabble rouser and he's causing problems. So he sells him out right away. It's McMurphy. Okay, fine, no problem. They take him, he's screaming out, they put him in the straight jacket. Nuts, right? Crazy. They take McMurphy away. It's okay, whatever, fine. And then you get to the really powerful ending. The last five minutes, Nicholson walks in, and earlier in the movie, at the electric shock therapy, he's got this look in his face like he's like, oh, you know, messed up. And he gives Chief a wink like, I'm just messing around. He's like, ah, I got you guys. Ah, I'm back. This to me walks in, he looks like a disaster. Front part of his hair is shaved. Goes into the bed. Chief goes over. No one knows Chief can talk. And he says, Mac, Mac, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's break out of here. Let's do it. I can do it. And he looks up. You see the scar on the forehead. He's been lobotomized. McMurphy is no longer. He does not exist Jeez. as a human. He's done. He's a vegetable. And he's like, oh, no, Mac. Oh, no, Mac. He's like, I, I wouldn't leave without you. I wouldn't leave without you. Boom. Gets a pillow. Smothers him. Kills McMurphy. Because they've already killed him. So I'll kill you officially. Then he goes and grabs the big sink, which McMurphy said he would do earlier in the movie. Couldn't do it. Chief is just this big barrel-chested Native American. Grabs it. Rah! Picks the thing up. Water's pouring. Throws it through the wall. 
and then just exits. Music source. Not much music in the movie. That's the first time I noticed the score. I go, oh, it's actually some music in this movie. And you might say to yourself, sounds a little cheesy. But then you see Christopher Lloyd going nuts. He's like, yeah, he did it. He did it. Danny DeVito's going nuts. He did it. They're all just going to be did it. And that's that last great shot of him walking into the distance. It's an incredible film. If you've listened to this entire podcast over an hour now, do yourself a favor. If you've never seen it, watch One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. It's an, <laughs> I got to watch it. It's an it. all-time classic. All-time great movie, I promise you. The only problem is this. The Simpsons are so funny. As I was watching it, I was thinking of the spoof they did and Barney played Chief and at the end of the Simpsons episode Barney grabs it and throws it and walks out and burps and farts as he walks out that was the only issue for me but I love One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest a couple of reviews and then we're going to bounce this was a supersized episode thanks for hanging in here the entire time the postman uh, uh, always rings twice from caffeinated Clint a film threat a steamy and suspenseful piece of film um, I don't like the reviews of Chris Pick from Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, the, last, the last detail. Add immaculate casting. A noteworthy debut for cinematographer Michael Chapman. That's a great point. He shot that. He also shot Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. And a spare and subtle score by Johnny Mandel. You're left with a gem of a film. That's by Judith Christ of New York Magazine slash Vulture. Fun episode, Cody. Cal Penn, yeah. the captain, and a ton of Jack Nicholson. On the next episode, yeah. we'll do Road to Perdition, which I had mentioned before, and Better Call Saul. As Chris mentioned, we should probably do it after the finale is aired. I believe we'll get our friend uh, Roy to break that down for us. And until then, I'll see you at the movies. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.